Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today I've got interesting guest, Dr. Bolu. We're going to be talking about um, some interesting technology that he's working on. Doctor, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Good. Except for my voice, I'm uh, doing good. Yeah. So if you wouldn't mind, tell listeners, um, what is it that you're working on? I, I don't want to describe it the wrong way. Sure. So um, I, I can give you the short version, and then we can talk about the long version later. But the short version okay. is essentially that we are working with people who have high-level spinal cord injury resulting in paralysis, um, actually resulting in uh, tetraplegia, so paralysis of all four limbs. And we are using implantable technology, so technology which is implanted inside the brain and technology which is implanted inside the paralyzed muscles, and combining that technology to give uh, a single person right now with paralysis the ability to control movements of his arm and hand uh, just by thinking. That's amazing. Okay. So this requires an implant both in a certain area of the brain and in um, in the muscle or in the spinal cord? Um, so in the muscle, right. So um, so I can give you the longer version. Yes. So the, the technology that we're developing, um, the first thing I should say is that it is an investigational device, uh, meaning that it is only used within the context of our FDA-approved clinical trial. Um, it's a clinical trial called BrainGate which is actually a consortium of a, of a number of sites across the country. Um, it includes um, Stanford University, Case Western Reserve University, where I am an assistant professor, uh, Brown University, and then it's actually hosted by Massachusetts General Hospital. So the device actually consists of two main technologies. Um, the first called a brain-computer interface, and, and the second called functional electrical stimulation, okay? So I'll, I'll talk about functional electrical stimulation first, and then I'll talk about the brain-computer interface. So I'm part of a, a consortium of researchers, researchers, clinicians, engineers, um, who are part of, a, who consists of a group called the Functional Electrical Stimulation, or FES, Center of Excellence. Um, we're a center located at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Hospital. And for the past 25 or 30 or so years, uh, the FES Center has been developing uh, technology which uses electrical stimulation to animate uh, paralyzed limbs uh, to restore loss of function to people with paralysis. So in, a, in much in the same way that a pacemaker can apply electrical stimulation to regulate um, you know, cardiac, uh, basically car activation of cardiac muscles, um, you can do. You can basically use similar ideas for activating contraction of paralyzed uh, muscles. So, uh, the center has been developing you know, implantable technology, implantable FES technology for 25, 30 years, and this technology has actually been used and both clinically and commercially deployed to uh, restore, um, you know, hand grasping in people who have paralysis of their hand. Um, it's been used clinically to restore um, simple movements of the paralyzed arm, so movements of the shoulder and the elbow. 
It's been applied in people with paraplegia, so um, paralysis of the lower extremities, to give them the ability to stand up or the ability to uh, take, you know, take steps and the ability to, um, you know, restore trunk stability, so the ability to, to sit upright. It's also been applied to um, people who have you know, difficulty breathing, um, who, who need assistance breathing, assistance coughing, um, people who need assistance with pelvic function, including bladder functions, bowel functions, uh, sexual functions, and the like. All these persons affected by varying levels of spinal cord injury. Um, so my point is that this technology, functional electrical stimulation, has actually been is fairly well established and something that our group has been doing for a long time. Now the current so, so um, quick question. So the functional electrical stimulation, it can make parts of the body move, muscles activate, but is it under a person's control or is it only when the stimulus comes? Well, that's 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 the key point. So. Previous iterations of the functional electrical stimulation system, or all iterations of the functional electrical stimulation system, require some way of initiating the stimulation. So for somebody who has, for example, let's say paralysis just on one side of their body, um, if we can capture the movements on the other side of the body, so let's say, for example, they can, they, let's say, for example, they're paralyzed on the right side, and, but their left side, they have volitional shoulder movements. We can capture the volitional shoulder movements using um, position transducers, um, electrodes which measure maybe the EMG in the, in the non-paralyzed shoulder, and use that to initiate the stimulation of the paralyzed limb. Okay? So that's what we call a command interface. We need an interface to allow the user to command the electrical stimulation. The, and now this works well for people with lower level cervical spinal cord injury or incomplete paralysis, you know, people with, you know, some residual uh, motor activity remaining after the injury. Now, the problem, is, the problem is that for people with higher level cervical spinal cord injury, so we're talking about people with cervical level one, cervical level two, three, and four spinal cord injuries, um, these injuries often result in persons with paralysis from the neck down. Um, and so if they're paralyzed from the neck down, um, there aren't that many options in terms of remaining volitional movements that a person could use to command the stimulation. Um, the, other thing to keep, the other thing to keep in mind is that you know, so there are options. You know, some people, for example, can, can grimace their neck or can wiggle their ear. There is an option that you could capture the muscle activity associated with neck grimacing or ear movements. So um, the neck muscles are called the platysma. The, the muscles behind the ear are called the auricularis muscles. You could theoretically capture, and some people are able to capture, the muscle activity associated with those movements and use that as the command interface or to, stim to initiate stimulation of electrodes in the arm and the hand. Um, the difficulty with using just, you know, for example, the auricularis or the platysma muscles is that if you want to command a multi-dimensional system, so the arm is a high degree of freedom or high-dimensional system that need, where the joints need to be coordinated. So we want to coordinate movements of the wrist, of the elbow, of the shoulder, of grasping and the like. Um, using a simple, you know, on or off threshold from a muscle from the auricularis or the platysma doesn't really give the user a lot of 
control or really the ability to coordinate or volitionally and naturally coordinate the many joints of the arm and hand. So our thought was, what if we could, rather than using these sort of um, unrelated command interfaces, whether it's you know, volition, uh, movements of the unparalyzed limb or of the ear or of the, or of the neck or voice commands or tongue movements, which have all been used for uh, rehabilitation devices, what if we could actually capture the intact brain activity that's directly related or directly gives rise to movement? So it's well known that people with spinal cord injury, for the most part, cognitively, um, barring some, you know, barring some uh, neuroplasticity, meaning changes in the brain, um, for the most part, these persons have um, uh, intact uh, I- intact neuroanatomy, um, and we understand the we understand the um, the brain activity and how it relates to movement. So our thought was, if we could place electrodes inside the brain and capture the neural activity, the cortical activity, from specific parts of the cortex, which were related to desired movement, and if we could build algorithms to recognize the intent of the user, we could then essentially use this brain-computer interface as a means of commanding the stimulation of the, of the, electro, of the muscles in the arm and the hand. So what and why got, would why would that be better than um, than using your tongue to control you know your arm or sure, some sure. other neck muscle? Sure, a couple reasons. So the first is that um, one of the cardinal rules of uh, rehabilitation devices is you don't want to require the user to use a function which is currently intact to control a function which is which is disabled or which is paralyzed. So, for example, let's say that we wanted to use somebody's tongue as the control, as the command interface for their arm and the hand. Well, that would mean that they could not control the device while they were eating simultaneously or while they were speaking mm-hmm. simultaneously. So, we don't want to copt or you know take over a um, function which is under volitional control and use for other meaningful activities to control um, to control a device which is which to control, uh, to restore function. So that's why we don't want to use, you know, something as a tongue, uh, for example. Similarly, we don't want to, we don't, we, we don't want to use voice recognition just because, again, it, it does not, it would not allow the user to perform multiple activities simultaneously. Um, we don't want okay. to use, we, we want to shy away from using the muscle activity or what's called the electromyogram or electromyographic or e- EMG signal of the ear or the neck, the auricularis or the platysma muscles, because it's it's a very simplistic means of control and it does not contain the uh, bandwidth of information that would be required to control a multi-joint <clears throat> arm and hand system. So, so by, most, direct, go ahead, I'm sorry. The most natural, yeah, so the most natural thing to do it, the way to do it, the way it happens is for someone to think about moving their arm and you can you're saying you can get a lot of sophistication um if i think about moving you know my pinky versus my thumb or moving my pinky and my thumb together can you can my thoughts be very sophisticated and will that translate to the motion of the arm for instance or the hand well so yeah so for the last 30 or so years um research scientists research scientists have investigated this very question 
Um, what do the under what do the firing patterns of brain signals or specifically individual neurons mean with respect to movement? So in the mid '80s, uh, there was a lot of work where uh, in non-human primates and monkeys, where researchers were able to correlate the activity of individual neurons to the movement direction of a monkey's arm. So a monkey would move from a center target to the vertices of a, of a cube, and the researchers were able to um, correlate the activity of the, neural, of the neurons to the desired movement direction. Um, since then, researchers have looked at correlating neural activity to various parameters of movement, including movement velocity, um, including uh, activation of different muscles, um, different joints, uh, different hand grasp patterns. Um, and so in the field, we've essentially built up a, a very extensive knowledge base about what neurons, specifically in the primary motor cortex, um, mean or how they relate to desired movement. So in our system, um, we've implanted uh, a well, actually two four by four millimeter microelectrode arrays inside the uh, inside the primary motor cortex um, of a human with um, high cervical spinal cord injury. Uh, each of these arrays, I mentioned, it's four by four millimeters, so very very small. Each of these arrays has ninety six recording electrodes which penetrate the cortical tissue uh, one and a half millimeters in depth. Um, the spacing is such that it allows us to record uh, the activity of individual neurons, so recording with very high spatial resolution. And we actually record from these neurons 30,000 times a second, so we're pinging the brain 30,000 times a second so that we can actually record the, the high temporal resolution action potentials or basically the electrical signaling of a population of neurons. Um, so we, so between these two arrays and our particular participant, we started off recording probably a hundred plus neurons. Um, and what we've been able to do, or what we've tried to do now, is design um, algorithms to recognize the patterns of neural activity and essentially decode the intended movement of the user. So if we, so. If our algorithms can robustly and correctly decode or extract the intended movement command uh, from the user, it can then use that, send that movement command to the electrical stimulation system to cause it to, stim to, cause it to simulate the arm and the hand to move in the manner that we are predicting the user is intending to move. So is it, <clears throat> from the patient's perspective, they're thinking about moving their arm in a certain way and... It moves, and is there a lag between the thinking and the and the motion? That's a good question. So, if you ask our user, if you ask our particip participant, he says, and we quoted this in our paper, which was published in the Lancet, uh, I believe, end of March. He says, "I just think about my arm moving, and it moves to where I wanted to." So, to him, it's a seamless process. Um, he generates mm -hmm. the cortical activity that's that. Uh, would typically arise in movement of his arm and hand, but because he's paralyzed, that movement signal can't get past the spinal injury um, to his muscles and, and, and nerves. Uh, we harness that movement command. We Sorry, we harness uh, that cortical activity. We decode the movement command, and we actually stimulate the arm every 20 milliseconds. So every 20 milliseconds, his arm, his, the muscles of his arm and hand, are receiving a new electrical uh, stimulus. 
um, and causes it to respond, respond in kind. Um, he says that he does not perceive uh, a, a delay. Uh, I will say the movements are significantly slower than able-bodied movements, of course. Um, the movements okay. are, they are deliberate, they are slower. Um, however, in persons with, you know, complete tetraplegia, uh, speed is not the number one uh, parameter of success. You know, he's now, you know, eight years, or actually now nine years after he had his traumatic spinal cord injury, he's now using our device able to perform simple, what we call activities of daily living. So in the paper, we demonstrate him grasping a, a cup of coffee or a mug of coffee, bringing it to his face, and taking a drink through a straw. We also demonstrated him, or rather he demonstrated, the ability to use the combined brain-computer interface and functional electrical stimulation system to hold a fork or a modified fork and to scoop and to scoop uh, mouthfuls of mashed potatoes and feed himself. Um, wow. so, so we believe this device offers promise for persons with complete paralysis, for persons with high cervical spinal cord injury. It offers the possibility of some level of independence. Um, we're not claiming that persons who would use the system would be completely independent. We're not at all claiming that we are repairing the spinal cord injury. We're simply circumventing the pathway through the spinal cord, which is blocked by the spinal injury, and giving, at least in this one person, the, him the ability to uh, perform activity of daily living, move his arm and hand um, just by using his natural cortical activity. What, what's been his response? Is he amazed? Is he happy? I mean, you know, how does he... Uh... What has he said? Yeah, so he's a very stoic figure, if, if you will. Um, so he doesn't smile very much. But the first day that he did move his arm on his own, he did smile. And the first day that he fed himself mashed potatoes, he smiled. Um, he's actually, you know, I, 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 I jest a little bit because in all actuality, we obviously could not have, could not have done this with, without him. Um, he's been an amazing, an amazing participant. Um, he, you know, has been, he's very, not, not just outgoing, but very knowledgeable in terms of, in terms of the technology, in terms of what he needs. And he's always pushing us in terms of, you know, figuring out what is the next step and what additional functionality can we, can we give him? Um, he recognizes that, or, or what he says is that he's doing this, um, for persons in the future who could potentially benefit from the technology he has obviously had, has seen some benefit within the context of our clinical trial, uh, but really he understands that this is a research project, um, an investigational device. Uh, he does not use it in his own home. He uses it within the context of our lab only, again, within the context of the clinical trial. Um, but he's been ecstatic. He's, um, you know, he wants to continue in the clinical trial, and he's, you know, geared up and waiting to see what's next. What, what would be a huge breakthrough? Um if he could stand on his own, maybe, what would be the next step? So, um, so we are not working in this clinical trial on restoring um, standing and walking. Again, we're primarily focused on restoring hand and arm function. Um, I will say, though, that, uh, again, the functional electrical stimulation technology, the FES technology, that already has been applied in the lower extremity. So there are people uh, with... with uh, with you know paralysis of the lower extremities of the of the legs, who use implantable FES technology 
to regain the ability to stand, to regain, who regain their ability to take steps. That technology is already out there um, in, you know, in our research labs, and people have used it within their home, you know, under, you know, under supervision. Um, but the goal of this particular clinical trial is to restore, uh, restore reaching and grasping. Now, to maybe your larger question about what is next in the clinical trial, either for him or for the device, um, there are many, many hurdles before I think our technology would become um, standard of clinical clinical care. Um, there are a number okay. of technological hurdles. Uh, we are in what we would claim to be the beginning stages. Um, some people say that we are where computers were in the 1980s and that the exponential advancements you saw in computers you could potentially see in the area of brain-computer interfaces. Um, right. Some things that we uh, are working on currently. Um, number one, the participant, you know, he basically comes into our lab and he's connected to a set of computers which record his brain activity um, at a high, high rate, 30,000 times a second. Um, for a clinically viable system, we would obviously need a system where he's not tethered to a set of computers. We would need a wireless brain interface. There are people who are working on wireless brain interfaces. In fact, some of our collaborators at Brown University have demonstrated um, technically how a wireless interface would work, and they've you know, published that data or published that, that work. They've actually also shown it working in non-human primates, having a wireless interface connected to a stimulation system in non-human primates. Okay. Um, for human participants, um, that, that device or that wireless interface is not yet approved, um, but are, our collaborators are frantically working on developing a wireless interface, uh, which would be available to um, persons using a system such as ours. So that's, num so that's number one. Um, number, yeah. two, number two is that the implantable brain electrodes that we are using right now are actually a commercial device. They are um, FDA-approved under um, our IDE, or Investigational Device Exemption. Um, I, in my opinion, they are not the final solution for uh, brain interface system. They're very good, um, but, you know, people in the field would say that they tend to last anywhere between one and five years. Now, we would obviously... What would be, um, yeah, what would be the ideal solution then? So, well, so we would want an interface which would outlive anybody who would receive uh, this implant because obviously it's a it's a it's brain surgery uh, it requ mm. currently requires a craniotomy um, to implant these electrodes and you would not want to have to implant the uh, go in more than once to implant the electrodes so the current iteration of the of the of the um, brain electrode which is again commercially available by a practice is not the final solution um, it has you know so obviously whenever you put and a, a foreign object inside the body, the body can have um, a response to it. In this particular case, when you implant these brain electrodes inside the body, you know, it's well known that there is an inflammatory cortical response, meaning the cortex can get potentially inflamed. Um, there can be scarring around the electrode, if you will, and over time that scarring can reduce the uh, reduce the uh, robustness or fidelity of the neural signals we're able to record. Um, neurons can potentially migrate away from the recording area. And so over time, what you will see 
is you'll see a decrease in the number of uh, of signals or robust signals which we can record um, around this electrode. Now again, you know, it, five years we've had a, a single participant who's had this electrode implanted for five years, and after five years, she was still able to control a robotic arm using her brain signals. So I, w I will say that. Um, but again, we'd want an array which would last 20, 30, 50 years. Um, persons with spinal cord injury, you know, spinal cord injury happens, I think the average age is 30, maybe upper 30s, 37, 36 years old. Um, oh, no. and, person, and these tend to be you know, younger persons who still want to have some semblance of independence, who have, you know, a, an extended lifespan. Um, and so we would want an array which would outlive um, any potential user. Um, we would love to yeah, be able to... Yes, we would love to be able to uh, place arrays in multiple parts of the brain. Um, right now, we're recording from one particular part of the brain called the primary motor cortex. Um, it's easy to access. We understand what the what the neural signals from primary motor cortex mean. But there are other parts of the brain which have signals which are related to movement, and we would love to be able to harness some of that information, which theoretically could make use of these devices even easier could add additional functionality and the like. So, so advancing the brain interface is, I think, a big, big step in terms of uh, these systems becoming um, clinically viable and usable on a day-to-day -day basis with high performance. What has this taught you about uh, the brain and how it controls movement in the body? Has it revealed anything new that you didn't know before? So um, it does have, because we're able to record with very high resolution, it does have the potential to give us the ability to understand cortical circuits um, at a resolution which we, um, which we have not before. Um, we've, in our lab, in my lab, have done some um, studies where we try to understand or we try to model how the, how the brain controls movement of um, of, of the system, so how, how we're able to use these 100 or so, um, 100 or so neurons uh, to control movements of cursors, of, of robotic arms, of FES arms, and what happens under different circumstances. So, for example, how the brain typically uses feedback um, to adjust or to modulate the activity of these, these different neurons. Um, there are people who are looking at, um, not in my lab specifically, but there are people looking at how we could potentially write information into the brain. Um, and I want to be very careful when I, when I say that phrase. I want to be very specific about what I mean. So right now, we are reading information from the brain, reading uh, the activity of individual cortical circuits. Um, our users are able to produce a movement, a motor command, but because they're paralyzed, they don't receive any what we call sensory feedback. Um, they can see the they they receive they receive visual feedback. They can see the arm moving, but they don't receive a sense of touch or a sense of temperature or anything like that from uh, from their newly animated limb. There are people looking at how to write sensory information back into the cortex by directly stimulating uh, sensory cortex, an area of the brain which you call S1, sensory cortex to be able to give persons the ability, uh, give persons a sense of pressure or a sense of touch. Um, so that would be another another, another major uh, hurdle that I think we'd have to, uh, or challenge rather, um, that we would have to overcome 
to be able to incorporate not just the ability to move, but the ability to sense um, aspects of your environment. So we're learning how um, sensory cortex is wired, um, how to um, how to manipulate electrical stimulation, the parameters of our electrical stimulation system to get the brain to understand sensation um, so that, you know, when you stimulate the cortex, the person doesn't just feel a tingling, but will be able to feel, you know, maybe the difference between, uh, the difference between, um, for example, sandpaper and silk, as an example. We're not there yet, but there are people working on how to write sensory information inside the brain. Has anyone done that at all? Or it's, it hasn't happened yet to to give feedback to the brain, so it can, you know, so you could tell it it's it's it should feel again like you said sandpaper or something soft. Yeah. So there are people. Um, there are groups who are working on directly stimulating sensory cortex. Um, there was a paper published in late 2016 by a group from University of Pittsburgh, and they showed in a human participant the ability to stimulate. Uh, sensory cortex and to restore um, tactile sensation, so sensation of different parts of the hand. So the user, the, the the user receiving stimulation, could articulate that they felt pressure in various parts of their hand. Now, again, this person was paralyzed, so they couldn't actually feel directly on the hand. But by directly stimulating sensory cortex, he was able to report varying elements or varying amounts of tactile sensation on specific areas of the hand. So that was encouraging. Um, that's, not, that's not the same as reporting, you know, differences in texture, but it's but it was an excellent and encouraging first step to at least suggest that, hey, we could, you know, change patterns of electrical stimulation and apply those to directly stimulate sensory cortex and give the user um, some, sense, some sense of, of tactile feedback. The trick now is, number one, to be able to, you know, refine the electrical stimulation so that we really understand what happens when we change the electrical stimulation patterns and how that affects the perception of uh, the, the sensory perception, and then combining that in a single system where a user could make a motor command move either a robotic arm or their own limb, as in our case, and at the same time receive electrical stimulation and sensory cortex to give additional feedback about what the arm is doing. So again, that's way down the road, um, yeah. but you know that is that is a direction in which the field is. When you say way down the road, what's your? I know it's a guess, really, but what's your projection on when some of these things will come into play clinically and then perhaps even commercially? Right. So. Um, the technical hurdles that I've described, um, for example, the wireless brain interface, people are working on right now. And, um, you know, within five to 10 years, um, a number of those technical hurdles uh, could be overcome. Now, of course, with all, as always with engineering, new technical hurdles may be emerged. Um, but, you know, some of the major hurdles, in turn, for example, the wireless brain interface, I believe could be accomplished within, you know, five to 10 years. Um, you know, some of the hurdles in terms of in terms of dealing with the biological uh, responses, you know, to implanting electrodes. Again, the timeline there is a little bit uncertain, 5, 10, 15 years, but again, there are people actively working on um, on solutions to mitigate the uh, neuroinflammatory response. Um, there are a number of hurdles which are non-technical. 
uh, which would, uh, which, you know, could slow down or at least uh, delay uh, devices such as, this, such as this being, you know, commercially available, you know, one of which is insurance reimbursement. Um, that is not something that I have any particular expertise in, but, you know, but obviously right. um, these sorts of devices, um, they would need to be uh, reimbursable by insurance uh, because otherwise it would make it very difficult to reach, um, you know, those who, who need it. Yeah, it would be very, very expensive, I'm sure. Yes. So, you know, how do you feel about being a part of this? Is this... Um been a dream of yours to be able to work in this area or, you know, what do you feel personally about the work you've done? Um, so I'm very proud of the work that our team has, has accomplished. Um, particularly, I'm, you know, very proud and thankful for our participant, um, Bill Kochevar. Um, his name has been on the media and he's been, he's been wonderful uh, for the field, you know, for our work. Um, I personally, you know, have been working in this field for, well, in this specific project for about 10 years. Um, other persons, for example, the uh, the senior author on the paper, Dr. Robert Kirsch, who is the chair of biomedical engineering here at Case Western Reserve, is also the executive director of our FES Center. Um, he's been working in this field, uh, particularly functional electrical stimulation, for 20 plus years, and there are people who've been working on it even longer than that. The BrainGate Consortium, um, or the, the BrainGate Consortium, which I mentioned, consists of ourselves. Stanford University, Brown University, and Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, this consortium, this clinical trial, has been going on in various forms for about the last uh, about the last twelve to fifteen years, um, and and various, you know, I believe about ten or so persons have received the brain implant, and I've used it for various applications. So, as an example, you know, our colleagues at Stanford University are using the same um, brain interface. Uh, to restore uh, high-throughput communication or to develop high-throughput communication devices for persons with, um, with the inability to speak or communicate. So what this means is that they have developed algorithms that allow them to essentially decipher, decode the brain activity into, into very fast movements of a computer cursor on a screen to select, um, to, for example, to, to select uh, letters on a virtual keyboard so that users can can send messages via the computer, you know, via email or or chatting or IM or what have you. Um, they recently published a paper at the beginning of February in eLife. Um, it's very good, very great work. Um, they and our other collaborators at Brown University have participants who have these same brain electrodes, not the muscle stimulating electrodes, but who have the same brain electrodes and have used it to control robotic arms. Um, and the like. So the work is, my point is the work has been ongoing for a number of years. Um, I've been involved in it for about 10 years, and and it, it was just a great opportunity to, of course, number one, you know, do something which had, which makes a high impact in, you know, persons with disability. Um, but then also there's an opportunity, again, just as an engineer to see, you know, we see the brain as the next frontier, if you will, and to be involved in that work. Um, was just was something I, I couldn't pass up. Um, prior to this, yeah, prior to this, I was a graduate student at Northwestern University, working with persons who had amputations. And then once I finished my PhD, I came to work. I came to Case Western and the VA in Cleveland uh, to work on this uh, very cool and very amazing opportunity. Oh. Well, Doctor, thank you so much. This is this was really great work you're doing. It's amazing, and um, hopefully we'll see in the next few years that it becomes. Um, you know, commercialized and 
it helps people that are paralyzed. So, well, thank you. I appreciate the interest in in, in the work. Um, it probably be more than the next few years, but you know, again, we're actively working to 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 make these devices, you know, robust um, and move them away from proof of concept into something that people could begin to think about using um, outside of the lab. So, again, thank you for your interest in our work. Okay, very good. We'll take care. You too. Bye bye. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. <laughs>